And here's when they have New York rain gutter sex, which is disgusting. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and the stories in them. And this week, we are concluding our month-long journey through the erotic thriller. And so, Thomas, we've talked about the erotic thriller. What, what all have we discussed regarding this genre this month? Well, we've kind of covered this month, like, the beginnings and, and the end. <laughs> the ends. And now we're going to do somebody who is working in the middle. So we, we've, we've talked about other movies like Body Heat. Uh, we talked about Body Double at the beginning of the month. And, and this early idea of the erotic thriller just kind of being an R-rated film noir or an R-rated neo-noir, uh, which is yeah. obviously something that Brian De Palma was, was very passionate about, was kind of the neo-noir. And, and bringing those, those things that were left unsaid, especially the sexual content that was left under the surface in the noir films to the surface. Uh, we also talked a little bit about the eighties and home video and the idea that kind of as the VHS era rose up these, these specifically this genre became a kind of like in between for like softcore porn almost yeah. <laughs> at some yeah. point. Uh, so, so some of these movies, some of the lesser movies from this genre as you can start to see it become more and more derivative, some of the lesser mm-hmm. movies in this genre literally had no reason to exist other than to be <laughs> sexy. You know, the the thriller yeah. part wasn't really of interest to them. And yeah. that's not to say there weren't a lot of very talented people working in this genre uh, and that there weren't some that were very thrilling. But but it is a we, we, we've talked about how this is one of those weird genres that like came and went so fast because I do think it was like corrupted and kind of sucked soulless so fast pretty quickly yeah, yeah. it's kind of like we talked about the uh when we were talking about thank god it's friday we were talking about the disco movie and how fast the disco movie was just kind of sucked dry and uh, disco also just as a musical genre i think that that's gonna get a mention today by the way i, I, I know we did we definitely did did one that was a <laughs> disco-esque so yeah so we, we we talked about kind of how the erotic thriller shares a lot of the same identity traits as as a noir film you've got kind of your innocent uh kind of your innocent man who's dragged into temptation dragged into crime dragged into danger often by you know the sex appeal of a film fatale Mm -hmm. sometimes in specifically this this week we're going to talk about kind of the opposite uh mm-hmm. which is you know there you go get some get some innocent women dragged into something by by a man fatale yeah we'll get a but we'll get both we'll get a femme fatale and kind of a, a male fatale yeah. or whatever uh with these movies but but yeah so we're, we're specifically talking about like a, a period from like 85 to 95 when these <laughs> these were films that like at one point had a enough prestige that they could get academy award nominations to by the end of it we're we're talking about kind of you know straight to blockbuster vhs or hbo or hbo like straight to max um and then as we talked about last week then kind of capped off in 2099 by eyes wide shut doing Mm -hmm. like like a 
takedown, kind of like an anti-erotic yeah. thriller is yeah. what we, we came away from our Eyes Wide Shut conversation. So yeah. I, I'm very excited about this week. I, I, I really think we have have never done a director episode that has like really encapsulated an entire genre but because of yeah because of that quick rise and fall of that genre our director this week was in it at the beginning and was yeah. was in it through the end so it, it's yeah. a, it's a very even after the week. end yeah even after the end yeah. with, yeah, with yeah, unfaithful absolutely. uh and so that leads us we're talking about adrian line today and yeah adrian line is is a, a director who just a very interesting career overall i will say like he's only made eight films and he's supposed to be making it or the ninth one's supposed to come out sometime in march we thought i thought it'd be out by now before we did this episode but it's not <laughs> um and that's deep water but he took a ba- it's a 20 year basically a 20 year break between films he's the terrence malcolm of rock thrillers basically yeah he's but he's done a lot of just i guess like films in the zeitgeist type thing like like really just massive films that hit a specific period with movies like Flashdance and fatal attraction kind of being the two big hits that are, we'll talk about today but yeah with, with the erotic thriller like it he his films when he tackles the erotic thriller, he definitely deals with all of those things we're talking about he talks he de- deals with the femme fatale he deals with the innocent man uh being brought into some corrupt or innocent person being brought into some kind of corrupt story um and yeah he definitely plays with those noir kind of plot lines i think we'll talk about it later but some like indecent proposal could have easily been some sort of noir storyline and this one doesn't i don't think fully succeeds in what it's attempting to do um so what were your thoughts on adrian line before kind of coming in to this episode i was very fresh i had seen fatal attraction and yeah that was it um oh wow i've seen pieces of unfaithful on tv like i knew unfaithful i knew the plot of unfaithful but i never sat down and and watched it all the way through uh and yeah and that that was that was it so i i knew that he i knew that fatal attraction specifically had really kind of yeah while it was kind of an amorphous genre up until then like everything after fatal attraction was was kind of derivative of fatal attraction like it is the the one that set the the standard uh, and, and i knew that he kind of continued to work within that genre afterwards but other than that i was very surprised by my experiences with his films yeah he's uh he's a guy where i i'd seen fail attraction i'd seen unfaithful i had seen foxes those are the three i'd seen actually before this it was unfaithful fail attraction and foxes um which is his directorial debut but yeah besides that and and see those other films but i knew like movies like nine and a half weeks i knew movies like indecent proposal that were like in this erotic thriller erotic drama kind of era mm-hmm. but for me when we because we talked about doing erotic thrillers i think for over a year or, or since last year and adrian lines always been the director we were going to talk about because i think some people will put like paul verhoven in there because of some of his films would be in this erotic thr- zone as De Palma, but Adrian Lyon, I think, as we're saying, because Fail Attraction is so big, it's like you kind of have to talk about him because he is the peak. I think no other film in this genre surpassed what Fail Attraction did in terms of critically and financially and prestige-wise. It really does, like, it's a it's the massive, I guess the tide that raised all boats, I guess, for that, <laughs> for that four or five years yeah. 
uh, after. So let's dive into the kind of early life and career of Adrian Lyne. So Adrian Lyne was born on March 4th, 1941 in Peterborough, Northamptonshire, uh, which is now called Cambridgeshire. I love the the English the English <laughs> names of Shire or Borough or whatever. Uh, but Lyne was raised in London along with his brother Oliver, who would later become a classical scholar and professor at the University of Oxford. I think he did like kind of Latin poetry was his big thing. Um, their father was also a teacher, uh, and during his school years, Lynn attended the famous Highgate School, which was where his father taught. Uh, the school has been around since 1565, and another film alum of the school is Oscar Wing director uh, Tom Hooper, who did The King's Speech and then Thomas's favorite Cats. <laughs> um, <laughs> while growing up, Lyon became an avid moviegoer, and the films he most gravitated toward were from the French New Wave. Filmmakers like Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, and Claude Chabral were the ones that really kind of inspired him to be a filmmaker. Um, he also became interested in music in his late teens and early 20s, playing trumpet in a jazz group. Now, in the 1960s, uh, Lyne began working in England as a commercial director. We talked about this previously when we, we covered Tony Scott, about being in this kind of like group of young British uh, ad directors uh, and and line was a part of this. Um, and these directors quickly rose to the ranks of commercials by directing flashy, energetic and stylish commercials. Uh, this group included line, Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, Hugh Hudson and Alan Parker line became known as the guy who, who uh, was famous for his gene commercials was what his kind of big claim to fame was, was how he shot gene commercials, hmm. which somewhat because they kind of a lot of the earlier ones you see like you see kind of the beginnings of like flash dance and his gene commercials uh also during this time uh line made two short films the table and and then another one called mr smith which were both shown at london film festival uh the the group the british group became started getting very popular and people started taking note of the commercials and their techniques were kind of admired and in some cases plagiarized uh, there was an article in The Guardian talk, looking back on this era, and Line talks about what was happening. He goes, I remember making this ad up in Yorkshire when I got a message that Stanley Kubrick had called me. Uh, he said he had seen an ad I'd made for milk in which I'd used a particular type of uh, a filter, and he wanted to know exactly what filter I had used. So I rang him back up from a phone booth or a phone box, my hand shaking. He ended up offering me the role of second unit director on Barry Lyndon. Oh, wow. I should have done it. I should have done it, but I didn't. <laughs> I thought if I'd, been, if I'd done a good job, he'd get all the credit. And if I'd done a bad job, I'd get the blame. So in the 1970s, as I was with that, people were looking at what was happening over there. But Hollywood was in the midst of this new Hollywood movement. And some critics were wondering if filmmakers had forgotten about making crowd pleasers. And so the defining moment for this group of British filmmakers came in 1976 when Alan Parker's film Bugsy Malone starring Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it was met with massive praise from audiences. And according to Sam Delaney in that Guardian article, Jet Jeans and, and Hovis, this ignited a stampede amongst Hollywood studios to snatch up British advertising talent. One key player in this movement was David Putnam. Now, Putnam was an executive producer on Bugsy Malone, and he soon began producing his own films with this core group of directors. He produced Ridley Scott's directorial debut, The Duelist. Uh, he, he, did, he produced Alan Parker's follow-up film, The Midnight Express, which was written by Oliver Stone. He also did the directorial debut of Hugh Hudson, which was the best picture-winning film, Chariots of Fire. 
Mm-hmm. Buried in the middle, middle of these massive financial and critical successes was Adrian Lyons directorial debut, Foxes. Uh, the film was produced by Putnam and Gerald Aris, who also serves as the film's writer. Um, Aris had produced f- previous films like The Last Detail and Cisco Pike. 20th Century Fox agreed to develop the script, but after the first draft was completed, they passed on it. That's when the script landed on Putnam's desk. Putnam loved the script, and he had a production deal with Casablanca Pictures, which would produce another film we covered. Mm-hmm. Thank God it's Friday. Um, when Putnam was searching for a director, he went to his core group of British ad filmmakers and basically picked the next guy up, and that was Adrian Lyne. So, Thomas, what is Foxes about? Foxes is about a group of young women, high school students, who are best friends and who are growing up in the San Fernando Valley in kind mm-hmm. of the, the the last days of disco. Um, very similar time period to what we just saw in uh, Licorice Pizza. But, you know, just that kind of childhood that, like, I, I, I just guess growing up in the valley leads to is, like, L.A.'s right there. I think it kind of makes you grow up a little too fast, it seems. Yeah. And so the main character, played by Jodie Foster, is kind of the glue holding the group together. They have this friend, uh, played by uh, uh, Sherry Curry from The Runaways, who's kind of the, the the black sheep. She's constantly like staying with them because she has an abusive father and has you know problems with alcoholism and and substance abuse. And and then there 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 are two other friends. Uh, who are a little less distinctive um yeah but but they're there madge 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 and uh um d or uh deirdre deirdre yeah. yeah deirdre and madge yeah and and it just kind of we just kind of follow them kind of you know day in life kind of thing couple of days in the life of, yeah. of what it's like to be not just you know a girl in that time period but but also like a teen just Even living just period. north of, of Hollywood. I think Ebert was just like, this should scare people in a way because <laughs> of how the teenager teenagers acting, which I find very funny. It's like almost like was this like was this the modern day eu- euphoria for people? Like, oh my god, are kids doing this out? Yeah, in the it did. World? It did kind of like, remind me of um, you know the the kids from the nineties. Um, uh, yeah, the way kids was about New York. This one was definitely like, you know, they're they're just letting all these teens like run free on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, going to parties and having people over and and. And yeah, it, it is this very much hangout vibe to it that is this. It, it, there is it's a very loose structure. Mm-hmm. Like we're still it's we're still in the midst, of, and it's also like the wandering LA movie in a way. Um, but when we're kind of talking about uh, with Elcott, uh, th- it, the script does have an interesting kind of vibe of just like seeing these four girls who are very much like family but aren't family mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and Jodie Foster really does like excel like i mean just compared to everyone else in this movie like she is kind of the big standout here i feel um unless you're a big fan of scott bayo in this movie i'm not sure <laughs> I'm, a, I'm you know i'm a mike damone guy yeah <laughs> so what were your thoughts on this film so you never seen this movie before i'd never seen this before yeah i mean it didn't blow me away in any sense but it, it's definitely got like a very nice flavor of, of mm-hmm. that time period and and i like i like hangout vibes you know i like stuff with hangout vibes and yeah, great cast. Cast is very talented. bunch of bunch of young kids that would go on to stuff. And and uh, Randy Quaid. <laughs> yeah, Randy Quaid. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun watch. I don't know that I would ever revisit it. But as far as that, it was kind of like you know th- this belongs in a very particular subgenre mm-hmm. of teen film. That's like the aimless teen film. Yeah. You know, it's it's not really 
about going anywhere or accomplishing anything it's just about kind of being being a teenager yeah i I actually like i watched it a few years ago for the first time because it's one that's very hard to find you can view it on youtube though it is on Mm. youtube for free because it's so it's so uh rarely talked about but it's not streaming anywhere else besides that and the dvd there was a a kino lorber blu-ray release but it's it's still like kind of hard to find nowadays but yeah it's like it's laura dern's kind of acting debut technically she's in the role briefly if you if you caught her she's one of the ones that at the party who keeps trying to get into the party when they're having like the the oh that was laura dern i I saw her i didn't clock it yeah i do i do really like probably my favorite part of this movie is the the use of donna summers on the radio it's kind of like the the theme of the movie they bring it in over and over again and then as it gets a little more dramatic score, yeah. at the end they're just doing like this like piano film score version of it that, yeah. that's done really well yeah good i mean good use of music overall and i think and that bringing that up like i think a lot of his films have great kind of mm-hmm. scores throughout them i think that's gonna be a reoccurring theme with his he's worked films, with some great composers have, throughout his, has, his career I wrote, I kept, every time like looking, while I was like, oh, there's Maurice Jarre. Oh, there's Morricone. Yeah, Morricone in 97, are you kidding? <laughs> in 7. I was like, what is it? I was like, he's just working with everyone. Like, go, oh, I want that guy. Let me go, let me go work with that mm-hmm. composer. Um, but yeah, he has a good sense of music, as we'll see in the next film. But yeah, so this movie, I said, I, I actually liked it better. I have watched it a few years ago. I liked it better this time, because I, I think I, I, I vibed more with this hangout vibe in a way. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like the kind of rant. Like, I kind of like Scott Bayo's character, just like being kind of there. It's the like, Oh, what do you, why, why are you not in school? Fire extinguishers. I'm reloading fire extinguishers. And then like later on, it's like, what do you, I thought you're, I thought you're reloading fire extinguishers. What are you doing now? It's like, Oh, it's Christmas season. I got to put snow on like the Christmas tree or whatever it was. Like probably Christmas best trees or whatever. spraying on those Christmas trees. Yeah. That's probably what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's a cool little, it's, it's a cool little vibe to it. It's, I, I like the music overall in terms in just like the needle drops they have in it. I think Foster's good. I think it's kind of a good kind of early kind of predecessor to some of those like teen hangout movies that you would get later on. Mm-hmm. May not, I mean, it's, it's post American graffiti, but like kind of pre dazed and confused is the thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's stuck in the middle. It's it. And really is when looking at kind of the other people of, of that British group, Foxes is the one that feels the most like, I don't know if art house is the right word, but like indie, like it's just, it's not, it doesn't feel, it's, it feels like it's still stuck in the seventies. Yeah. uh, It definitely has that feel of a seventies film, especially for a movie produced by Casablanca records. Yeah. 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 It definitely has that feel of like a, like a seventies, not like art house. Cause like the seventies were when kind of the, you know, the film, it has the feel of a film brat film you know yeah, yeah. just the the look and and the way it's shot yeah it definitely has that feel but that's why with, the, with it being casablanca that's why it had so many music in it music mm-hmm. in it like that's why they have um uh kiss they have a bunch of kiss posters and pictures on the walls of the characters because kiss was under casablanca at that time and donna summer right donna summer yeah as well so yeah and i feel like a lot of the music kind of comes from from them too um so it's a it's a it's a good little find i will say i actually out of the movies we talk about, I think this is one I try to push up as like one to kind of go out and seek because mm-hmm. it is, I think, a really good movie for what it is, um, and kind of an undiscovered, undiscovered gem. Um, but compared to all those other films we talked about, uh, of those at that group of British filmmakers, this was kind of the least successful. Um, it made seven point five million domestically. From what what I can find is that Ebert's kind of the only kind of top critic that reviewed it in terms of like what's been cataloged over the years. Like this only has nine reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And Ebert talks about how like it is this kind of shapeless form 
of these typical days and nights for these kids. But he, he, the big thing he says was the, the heart of the movie is the relationship between Jodie Foster and her mom, Cy Kellerman, who's from MASH, the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of praises that relationship. Someone who auditioned, I want to bring her name up here. Uh, apparently, uh, Demi Moore auditioned for this film at like 17, I think, oh, is what wow. it was. Booze, you dope. You, you sleep with whoever. I don't even know who you are. You look like kids, but you don't act like them. You're short 40-year-olds and you're tough ones. You just hate everybody since Dad left. Everyone except some guy you can just meet and... What? Meet and what? You throw yourself on the line all the time, Mom. You jump at some guy when he tells you he doesn't want to see you anymore. You just cry on the phone. I don't care if you are my daughter. You're not talking about me or my friends. Well, you talk about my friends that way. You don't like Sam? I don't know him. Do you? Do you know him, Mom? Did you know him before you just jumped into bed with him like that? That's nasty. It's cruel and nasty and ugly and unloving. I wish I could punch you. I wish to God I knew how to punch you. That comes out February 29th, 1980. But the film, I think it wrapped in January of 1979. So it like stayed on the shelf for like a year, hmm. weirdly enough. So that comes out in 1980. Also in 1980 is was happening outside of Adrian Line is that screenwriter Tom Headley, Headley had sold his new idea to Casablanca Pictures, uh, but Casablanca would later sell it to Paramount Pictures. And this idea was about a steel worker by day, dancer by night, and that would be Flashdance. It seems that this is where producers Jay Bruckheimer and Don Simpson became involved when it came to Paramount. And this would be the first collaboration between the famous producing duo of Simpson and Bruckheimer. Initially, Adrian Lyne was not the first choice to direct this. First choice for directing, who turned it down, was David Cronenberg. Would have been a weird movie for Flashdance with David Cronenberg. Uh, And the next person to turn it down was Brian De Palma, who decided to make Scarface instead. Wow. Wow, interesting. So yeah, so Paramount was very unsure of the film film because of Lyne's lack of experience. They sold 25% of the rights before it was released. And also that that is a very big mistake, as we'll talk about later. So Thomas, what is Flashdance about? Yeah, so Flashdance, as as you said, is about a a yeah. welder, a steel mill welder by day, kind of burlesque dancer by night. Yeah, yeah. It's- <laughs> Alex, uh, played by Jennifer Beals, who has been raised by this former ballerina who has like really encouraged her to dance. And she's got mm-hmm. dreams of going to this kind of ballet conservatory, but she doesn't have, you know, she's she needs the money. She, she's not confident in auditioning. And so she's working in the steel, steel mill. And she's also dancing at this burlesque club that's like not really. A, it's not a strip club. It's a burlesque club. It's not a strip club. It's like it's held up club, as yeah. this like higher than than the strip club and yeah, it, it kind of you have a strip this, club across the street yeah, or whatever that's like, like, the, little, like the dirty place yeah it's this little close-knit community of all these women who like kind of love to perform but obviously can't for for some reason can't get themselves to that higher level so they they come and and put on like very well done performances at this burlesque yeah. club like very high production <laughs> uh burlesque dances and it seems to be very popular in this small steel town uh, pittsburgh it's pittsburgh i think is what it is oh, okay yeah this is a movie that i had never seen before this podcast it's always one that like like that my parents are, you haven't seen flash dance what do you mean you haven't seen flash dance like yeah i see flash dance or like i remember back in the day like my like counselors who were who were big in the 80s films oh you gotta see flash dance never watched it but this is the movie that i always heard like it's the the first kind of example of 
how MTV was influencing filmmaking mm. at the time. And Flashdance definitely feels like, for the most part, MTV is a movie with like the very separated like musical sequences, like the dances, or like the the work the workout scene. Yeah. Like it's like it's like it's there actually that's where I thought there was like a whole act at one point. It's actually just them working yeah, out. It's just them working out. And it's shot it's shot like a music video. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. You know, he Adrian Lynn when he shoot the way he shoots this movie is is like it's not because the movie is about like this burlesque club is like not sexualizing them per se. Like, yes, these men show up and they and they catcall and they wolf whistle, but like the the girls are able to put this level of creativity into their performances where they don't feel they don't feel cheapened by it, which which we yeah, it's artistic. Yeah, which is which is ultimately showed to us when Alex has to go rescue her friend from the strip club and it is literal hell. Like it is red yeah. <laughs> all over. People are writhing around like demons. Like it is it is something out of like a like renaissance painting of hell yeah which is also why so so there's the like this workout sequence and it's just like shots of body parts and and motion but it's not yeah fetishizing it it no. it is very grecian and 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 he, yeah. he does later when when she goes to the conservatory the conservatory is filled with all these like grecian sculptures of bodies in motion mm-hmm. and and that's the way that he shoots this film and you can see him developing his eye for like body movement, which I think is his single strongest suit as a director. If you look mm-hmm. at his films as a whole is like body language and body movement, but it's, it's super interesting to take this as a step in his career because yes, there are all these shots of like bodies, but it's really not sexualized here, um, which it will come to be very much. So <laughs> yeah, it's stylized, not sexualized yeah. is the thing. Um, I mean, I do think and we'll talk about this a little bit now. I, I So what were your thoughts on this movie? I loved the first 45 minutes of this movie. I like loved I it. I was sitting I there agree. watching it and I was like, why haven't I watched this movie before? Because the way mm-hmm. first off, Jennifer Beals is so charismatic. It's amazing. She's, She's so, so likable in this movie. And and I, I love the like community that's built up at this burlesque club. Like mm-hmm. everybody's super supportive. And like when you're first yeah, the introduced, ice skating, the ice skating stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. Has when, their when other like when you're first introduced to the short order cook, you're like, oh, it's this like sleaze ball short order cook. But like, no, he wants to be a stand up comedian, and all the girls <laughs> are like super supportive of his dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And then her best friend wants to be an ice skate, a figure skater, and that that's my favorite scene in the movie. Like she goes to this competition, yeah. she skates to Gloria, which is a fan. I love that song. Gloria is an amazing mm-hmm. song. That song has no right to go as hard as it does. Um, <laughs> But that that sequence is amazing and there's a shot of yeah. like she ultimately she falls and we're cutting back to alex in the stands and she's like get up get up because everybody's like yeah. hopes are riding on this girl yeah and then she can't get back up and there's just this shot of her on the ice with like that just one a, spotlight. a spotlight on her and it just surrounded by blackness and then her dad who's been like this real kind of shithead before her dad comes into the locker room and it's like i've never been so proud of you and i was like i love this movie and then <laughs> the love interest gets involved and i'm sorry to this man but they have zero chemistry his character is so not interesting and yeah. it just completely derails the movie for me and it's just like you know the only ultimately plot wise if if the plot of the movie is to get her to audition for this is that climactic audition which i'm sure everyone has seen at least some of that's that's what i was familiar yeah. with was the yeah the yeah. audition 
yeah. yeah also amazing song flash dance academy award winning song if the ultimate plot of the film is to get her that audition there's all he serves is like to to get her the audition which feels cheap anyway and she's not happy like she's mad that he gets her the audition yeah. she should have gotten it on her own strength um so yeah it feels like it, it does feel kind of it, it feels you know very of its time but it feels a little held back by its time because there is this you, you can just feel them being like yeah let's get a let's get a romance in here where's her love interest yeah. let's get a little sex in here and like i would have loved a whole movie just about that like burlesque scene and all that these world. women who like really yeah. have a passion for performing but are, are are held back by something yeah and it it, it is like because i think visually his style is great in this movie mm-hmm. yeah because i even it's gorgeous again, we yeah again same thing when i watched it, i was like this this romance really brings this movie down like i feel like he tries to bring some eroticism into this romance oh yeah but like it just it just feels just up it just doesn't work my least favorite scene in the movie is when they're out to dinner together and she's like massaging him with her foot and then she takes off that jacket and she's wearing this like like small one piece like thing yeah Yeah. vest yeah not a fan and 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 her 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 attitude it's like it almost feels like her character feels completely different in that moment yeah yeah absolutely like like she she's not like i mean she becomes a very aggressive character, I guess, in that moment, and almost like jealous character too. Mm-hmm. Like, and to a point where, like, that's like it's like really bad because it's like her his ex wife his ex wife shows up is what it is, and she's yeah. like, "Oh, look at me! This is this is who he has now," and it just feels different than the rest of the character the entire movie yeah. to me. But no, I think Jennifer Beals is fantastic in this movie. I feel like her look kind of like all that she does and i mean it, this is one like it becomes just a pop culture phenomenon for one it establishes don simpson and jerry bruckheimer as like massive producers i also want to mention that both don simpson and john peters were producers on this movie i cannot imagine oh is john peters yes i, I cannot imagine the cocaine that flowed <laughs> behind the scenes of this movie knowing what we know about don simpson and knowing what we know about john peters bless me father for i have sinned it's been two weeks since my last confession I'm doing okay, sort of. I've been thinking about sex a lot. But you can't help thinking about sex, right? Well, you probably can help, I mean. Also, I told a lie. I had to. Well, I didn't have to, but all I wanted to do was to make her happy. You see, Hannah was the one who wanted me to get the application, and I couldn't tell her that I just didn't have the courage enough to go through with it. If you had seen all those dancers, all those people, God, there's no way I belong there. I don't know, it's just that I want to make something out of my life. I want to do so much, and sometimes, sometimes I think that it's just not going to happen. So let me tell you, let me give you some alternate universe cast in this movie real quick. So three candidates for this, for the final, for Alex Owens, there was Jennifer Beals, mm-hmm. and then another actress by the name of Leslie Wing. Can you guess who the third actress was? Demi Moore. Demi Moore. <laughs> and she did strip tease instead. And she did strip tease later afterwards. Uh, so um, I don't know how true these names are for the Nick Hurley, the love interest character, because there's a lot of names. There's Pierce Brosnan. There's Robert De Niro. There's Richard Gere. I feel like Richard Gere floats around as some of these alternate universe casts for, for Lines movies uh mel gibson tom hanks and john travolta 
Kevin Costner apparently was also close to it, but he was a, a more he was a younger struggling See, actor. I'd buy I'd buy kid. Kevin Costner as the the foreman of a steel mill. You know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, the one funny one that uh, allegedly he was offered the role but turned it down was Gene Simmons from Kiss. <laughs> he turned it down allegedly turned it down because it would conflict with his demon image. Yeah, that's true. This guy's yeah, definitely not yeah. a demon. He's not a demon. Uh, so when this movie came out, critics they hated this movie like it was like it really came out like they were i think a lot of them's like oh no is this what sim is gonna become like it's mtv like fast cutting like just music videos basically if they only knew um roger ebert famously hated the movie giving it one and a half stars he stated jennifer beals shouldn't feel bad she is a natural talent she is fresh and engaging here and only needs to find an agent with a natural talent for turning down scripts (laughs) Um, luckily for everyone involved in the film, the audience did not listen. The film would eventually gross $201 million against a $7 million budget. Wow. Uh, establishing line Bruckheimer and Simpson as box office superstars. The film also received three Oscar nominations, one for best cinematography, one for best editing, and one for best original song, Flashdance with a Feeling, which it won the best Oscar for. Deservedly. Was there any other favorite stuff you want to bring up about Flashdance before we move on? Because you talk, we talked about the, the, the way he shoots is amazing. Yeah, the cinematography is incredible. Uh, you know, there's this all these different. It kind of creates all these different worlds for her. She's got the the steel mill. She's got the burlesque club. She's got the like the the you know. It's a lot of like harsh lighting. But then when she goes to the conservatory, it's like all this natural light pouring into this like big open yeah, marble beautiful. space. Um, yeah, it's it's got an incredible eye to it overall, yeah. and I, and I think it's going. I think he's going to continue to have an incredible eye. I think that's that's kind of what I was most surprised by through this whole director study this yeah. week. Was even in, I feel like even in movies we don't like or are very mixed on, his his style is is what like makes it watchable. Mm-hmm. And now we begin to move into kind of the erotic nature of his filmography, and that's when he makes nine and a half weeks starring Kim Basinger and Mickey Rourke. So Thomas, what is nine and a half weeks about? (laughs) It's a great question. (laughs) Not much of anything. It's about a woman played by Kim Basinger who works in an art gallery and she meets a wall street broker out and about in New York. And they strike up this romance slash sexual fling. And he's kind of, He's kind of BDSM. He's he's a little kinky and opens up new <laughs> worlds to her. But uh, ultimately, it gets too exhausting for her. You know, it's just a little too much. And yeah, that's the film. There you go. Spoiler alert. That's, Sorry. that's, that's literally the film. I, I think that's my, my biggest complaint about this movie um, is that it has, I think it has two great performances from Basinger and Rourke. But it's just the same thing over and over again. Yeah. It's like this. This is one of those films that when I talk about trying to like make softcore porn, like there's yeah. there's nothing. And I mean, sh- he shoots it, shoots it very well. Everybody in it performs it very well. But it's like MTV, but with little porn scenes. scenes. Like yeah, we're just f- jumping from one erotic scene to another with like very little plot, very little story, very little character. Like I know nothing about these characters. Yeah, the sex scenes are Mission Impossible set pieces. Yeah, that's why. What, what I kind of, it's like they're just set pieces for them to happen. So, what did you like about the movie? Um, 
<laughs> I like Mickey Rourke. I, I, I'm a big fan of like 80s Mickey Rourke. Gotta be honest, yeah. I've never been a big Kim Basinger fan. That's fine. I just gotta say, love LA Confidential. Not a big, not a big Kim Basinger fan. You and my mom have one big thing in common, right? There now, we go. Like. I don't know. I, she's she's never blown me away with a with a performance, and and this is yet another example of that. Yeah, like this one, even more so than Flashdance. This one feels like an MTV movie to me. We're we're just going like interesting. We've got these little music video sequences of like here's when they have like the ice cube sex, and here's when yeah. they have food sex the kitchen the and here's when sex, they have yes. new york rain gutter sex which is disgusting <laughs> but that's that's kind of how it just kind of goes from scene to scene with and 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 kind of the structure as it is they'll have these like crazy sex scenes and then they'll be like oh here's a little romance scene and and yeah. then it's like sex scene so yeah i can see watching this movie i can see where a lot of movies that came after kind of owe you know where where the DNA of this film 50, 50, 50 shades of gray oh, I don't absolutely. think exists without, without gray. this movie yeah yeah that's like the one where you're like oh because everyone's like oh forget owing a debt to twilight this movie this that series owes a debt to nine and a half yeah. weeks and I'm sure it was it felt groundbreaking at the time to be like oh my god we're watching like two movie stars have sex but yeah that's all it is now like with with the kind of shine faded off from it the newness faded away from it that's just that's just all you're left with is yeah is that sex yeah well one thing i want to bring up here too and, and, and kind of, it's a little bit of backtracking to a flash dance so i i like the way line uses like cities as a part of his mm-hmm. stories like i think what i like about flash dance because there was a specific period in the 80s where like you you did like very like urban films like but not like working like, basically like, working class like labor cities in a way so like pittsburgh like that was really kind of big in certain movies in the in the in the 80s um and then now we're kind of getting this like 1980s yuppie new york city Mm -hmm. and i feel like you're gonna see a lot of like all of his characters from nine and a half weeks kind of onward besides i think lily being the 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 one that's kind of outside of it it's all kind of new york based all of his films there's always some sort of high class character in it. It feels like, or they're like having high class jobs. And this one's like, she's a Soho art dealer or art gallery employee. And Rourke is like a wall street guy, basically. And, and that's kind of, and you have like with Redford and indecent proposal being kind of this big, huge, rich guy. And then Richard Gere and unfaithful is kind of, I don't know if he's a wall street guy or not, but I know he's talking about stocks a lot. At one it's point. like trucks, trucking company or something. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's, but he's the owner of it. But he's always like, there's a the one scene where he's just like, hey, remember that stock? Yeah, ship about buying? that stock. You know, where it's, you know where we missed on that one. But yeah, you start seeing kind of this upper, like the, the, this class system that's kind of in it with a lot of his movies. And I think it really pops up here in nine and a half weeks as part of the story in some way, where these two kind of high class characters get involved in the sexual uh, uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, again, the way he shoots it, I think it's great. I think there's the big thing is like you're saying, it's like it just leaves sex scenes at the end of the day um but yeah rourke is someone who in the 80s well i love his, his character is like it's such a walking red flag the entire yeah. time yeah like in this movie i was honestly surprised maybe that's also why i kind of came away with this bad feeling about this movie is like as as like as many red flags there are in this it just kind of ends with her being like all right i'm done with this and he's just kind of like okay yeah there's no reason she just kind of i mean there's reasons but like she just it just kind of like in terms of story wise she just gets out of bed it's like oh no i'm leaving 
he's like, well, you've been the best one I've ever, like out of all the women, like you're the ones that I've loved or whatever. Um, but yeah, it feels, and what's weird is that like, I think Ebert, this was the highest movie Ebert or Ebert gave, he gave three and a half stars to this movie. Wow. I think it was this one and what was the, and Jacob's Ladder were the two he gave three and a half to. Everything else is below, below three and a half. Um, but yeah, so this movie got a lot of controversy upon release because of the sex scenes that were going to be in it. And in the U.S., they were forced to cut a lot of the sex scenes out of it. Um, and because of that, um, also, I think Demi Moore also auditioned for this film, by the way, um, just to say that. So Demi Moore involved in like three, or auditioned <laughs> for three of his films, it sounds like. The film was released on February 14th, 1986 in the U.S., but I said it was heavily edited, cutting out several, several sex scenes. The film would eventually tank at the U.S. box office, only grossing $6.7 million against the film's $17 million budget. Wow. However, the soundtrack for the film sold incredibly well, and the film was a massive hit overseas, bringing the film's total box office number to $100 million. And the overseas cut was an unedited version of the film. And that kind of built this cult around nine and a half weeks of like, oh, it was too, it was too racy for the U.S. And then slowly it started, it began to uh, build a following over time. I want you to meet my friend. I want you to meet my friends. Don't you want to meet my friends? I don't want to meet I'll start the dishes. No, no, no. Let me tell you something. You don't do dishes. You don't ever have to do dishes. I'll do the dishes. And I'll buy the groceries. And I'll cook the food. And I'll feed you. And I'll dress you in the morning. And I'll undress you at night. So after nine and a half weeks, he shows off his kind of skill for for erotic dramas. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Uh, would you classify nine and a half weeks no. as an erotic thriller? No, there's nothing thrilling yeah, yeah. about it. That would be it's thrilling. That would be an improvement. And that would move into his next film, which is an erotic thriller and kind of the peak erotic thriller as we've been talking about, and that would be Fatal Attraction. So Thomas, what is Fatal Attraction about? Fatal Attraction is about a happily married man played by michael douglas who uh one one weekend while his family is out of town has an affair with a a co-worker played by glenn close a client who, she's a client she's a client, she's a client. That's what it is. she's yes yeah. he is he is a lawyer he is counsel for a publishing company she is an editor at the publishing company yes correct probably wouldn't have to announce that one to hr but who knows uh <laughs> she seems she seems very fun and flirty whatnot they have this weekend fling but when he tries to go home on sunday she becomes very upset and eventually it eventually spirals into her becoming very unstable about their relationship and like beginning to threaten him and his family and their safety 
over whether or not he's going to like leave his wife for her and which if this sounds familiar it's because this movie like spawned an entire subgenre <laughs> of the erotic thriller which was like the crazy woman but it's much more yeah. it's much more subtle it's much more well handed well handled up to a point in this movie which i'm sure <laughs> you, you, i'm sure you have in your in your research brandon yes yes with glenn close so that's what kind of really kind of elevates this film is glenn close who's playing the alex forrest crazy woman as they would say because close was very like adamant that like she wanted to understand this character's kind of psyche and so she like consulted a lot of psychologists to kind of give like uh, what 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 this character would do in this instance this kind of thing and and close was always kind of like a little always pushed back on like just trying to make her like a pure like psychopath basically Mm -hmm. i think close was always interested in kind of seeing what the like the mental illness basically and not like this cold-blooded killer which is what the movie ends up kind of making her at the end in a way but yeah so this movie is actually based on a short film that came that was made in 1980 and it was developed uh later on and adrian line came in uh around 1986 i guess so probably after nine and a half weeks was released or during that time and he kind of helped redraft a script for the film so a lot of them had doubts about casting close in the movie until they did a, a audition scene or screen test with close and douglas and it was like one of the scenes at the cafe is what it is mm-hmm. um and close was like i came away convinced my career was over that I was finished because i completely b- blown my chances in that audition and they apparently loved her so much they offered her the role what's your favorite scenes or what do you like about fatal attraction thomas i think this is one of the examples within this genre of like what you what you can do in this genre if you have a really good cast yeah um I think everyone's great in this. I think Michael Douglas is great. I think the actress who plays his wife. Ann Archer. Yeah, Ann Archer. Ann Archer's yeah. great. I think the girl that plays their daughter is amazing. That is adorable. <laughs> oh my God. She's so cute. Yeah, everyone's everyone's awesome in this. Fred Gwynn is barely in this. I don't I don't know why he gets his name at yeah. the beginning. <laughs> he has like he has one scene, I think, yeah. is what it is. I saw his name pop up at the beginning. I was like, oh cool, Fred Gwynn. And then like yeah, <laughs> one thing. Yeah. But yeah, especially Glenn Close, I think, yeah, this, like we were saying, this kind of launches, launches this like subgenre of like the erotic thriller where you sleep with this girl and then she becomes nuts. And, you know, it's Hand yeah. That Rocks the Cradle. It's it's single white female. It, it it's was, swim fan, swim you fan, know, yeah. swim fan. But this it's it's wild to go back to the beginning and go like, oh, this was handled up and up until the end uh yeah this is handled really well and glenn close is doing yeah. it so well like like i th- i think one of the best scenes in the movie is when he goes to leave uh that that first time he goes to leave her and and she like mm-hmm. yells at him and she's ripping his shirt and he he finally gets oh, mad man, at her like brutal. they've had a yeah. great weekend he gets mad at her and then she comes out i mean it's chilling like she comes out mm-hmm. and she's like let's not be mad at each other let's kiss and make up and then they're kissing and he realizes that she's slashed her wrists. Yeah. And it's it is like that is some truly chilling stuff. Yeah, chilling. Yeah. Um and and I think that's that's where you get the elevation of I think Lynn is Lynn is really at at his at his peak here as far as like mm-hmm. 
the combination of the eroticism because that i think that that ultimately is what really makes this movie stand out is like he's coming off of nine and a half weeks you're kind of like okay this guy makes like sexy movies and then this there's like nothing at this movie that hints that this is going in that direction until it does you know they you're like yeah obviously this guy shouldn't be cheating on his wife but it's like oh they have great sex and they actually have like a really good time to just spending time together and they've got chemistry yeah. and they have similar interests and she she just seems like this this fun woman and he's like oh cool this this might work out but as as we know in this genre no it doesn't work out no it doesn't his dog likes her you know they yeah. go to the park and like they do all these little like kind of relationship things yeah and it, it is it's interesting because uh, lion talked about it. he's like what I, what I don't like about fail attraction is that everyone talks about the sex in the movie he goes they only have it's like the sex only happens for like 10 minutes mm-hmm. in the film like they're kind of the, those scenes like combined it's very short like it's very much about these characters and what happens when some of this happens in their lives and yeah they douglas and close have great chemistry and ann archer as the wife is given a little bit more than what most wife characters would have and kind of these still these not later enough. still not still enough, not enough. I, I, she gets I an think she gets, she gets an oscar nomination though for it which is surprising i do think that this is one of the movies that they were thinking about when they wrote eyes wide shut because like there's this whole thing in Eyes Wide Shut about like oh the it's the men that always have the sexual desires and yeah. the woman or is just in it for the stability and and the kids and that's very much that yeah yeah, yeah. it's because it, there is like a little bit it it is painted in this movie like oh he shouldn't have cheated on his wife but there's there's these little hints of like oh like sometimes he wants to have sex with his wife but like she's busy being a mom and like Ann Archer like never once tries to like instigate anything erotic with him or like sexual with him and so it is the kind of this idea of like oh the husbands all they always want to have sex and so that's why they have to go outside of the of the marriage so it, especially watching it like right after watching eyes wide shut you're like ah this is what this is what nicole kidman was like cracking up about in eyes wide shut is, <laughs> is, is this exact kind of like stereotype in in media you think i'm just i'm just the wife and fail attraction well <laughs> i beg to differ but yeah so you have you have a lot of the let's see we got maurice jarre doing the doing the score again mm-hmm. great score you got uh howard uh atherton doing the cinematography who did several of his movies being fatal attraction and his proposal and i think lolita as well but yeah so let's let's discuss the ending yeah because that's what i think we're all kind of leading to and so i'm sorry if you haven't seen fatal attraction spoiler alert she dies um alex Forrest dies but the big debate in the post-production process film is how should it end and how should Alex Forrest die? So Glenn Close, the original ending had Alex Forrest uh, essentially killing herself, slashing her throat uh, with the knife Dan had left, Michael Douglas had left, uh, and it makes it appear like he's he's murdered her, basically. And uh, he, goes to, he basically goes to jail, he goes on trial, and basically... Um, um beth who is who is dan's wife finds this tape from alex because because alex leaves kind of like little like cassette tapes for for dan when dan stops listening to her or talking to her and says the only way she can communicate and so she kind of admits that she's like i'm killing myself uh for you or whatever she used this tape to kind of like get dan acquitted uh and the last scene kind of shows in flashback alex like killing herself while listening to Madame Butterfly. Mm-hmm. And Madame Butterfly is kind of this reoccurring theme in the movie 
because they're listening to it at one point because Dan or Douglas talks about he his, his parents or his dad took him to see it when he was younger. After test screenings, they realized that people didn't like that ending. They wanted Alex to get comeuppance by someone else, not yeah. by herself. She wanted they want they wanted to see someone kill her. Basically. Audiences kind of hated her instead of feeling sympathetic towards yeah. her. Yes, exactly. And Close was always sympathetic to her, but she they wanted to see like the crazy woman get killed is kind of the thing. Yeah. Um, and so they end up doing a three-week reshoot of the ending where Alex is killed by a gunshot by Beth, um, who, sh- who shoots her. Um, and they kind of juxtapose this idea, or have this idea of like Beth kind of protecting her family because she's the wife and she's a wife and mother and she's like saving them from from Alex. Close very much was like, I think this character wouldn't do this because it makes her just a psychopath and serial or like a killer, yeah. basically. She, 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 when, when she like takes Ellen to the, the amusement park, she doesn't hurt her. Like, she doesn't do her that. Yeah. yeah. And so basically, Close, and I agree, is that she thinks this character is someone who's going to self destruct and hurt herself, not hurt someone else. Yeah. Um, because she never thought of her as a villain. She goes, I wasn't playing a generality, I wasn't playing a cliche. I was playing a very specific, deeply disturbed, fragile human being whom I had grown to love. And the ending made her a psychopath. But Close has acknowledged the film would not have experienced the same amount of success it did without that ending. Because she yeah. says a sense of catharsis, a sense of catharsis and a hope that somehow the family unit would survive the nightmare. Um, so I think Ebert, even like, I like this, or I think Ebert was so like upset talking about like they've basically ruined her character with that ending. So do you think that movie's better with the original ending or with this current ending? I, I do think it's better with the original ending. Um, but I do think the they having to go with the other ending, they do it very well. Like line obviously has a great eye for horror, which we're going to talk about yeah. very soon. Uh, the next, yeah. But that's, you know, this, this is when the like true melding. I don't know that. I, I don't know that we would have ultimately come to like the erotic thriller if you hadn't have yeah. had that that ending like yes there are like very I chilling parts of this film otherwise yeah. but i don't know that it would have been like the thriller aspect of it really would have come through if it weren't for that yeah. like shower bathtub sequence in this specific movie that and the infamous bunny boiling yes. scene yeah. as well which which close was also not a fan of at all because she felt like it pushed her character over the edge again going that same thing is that she feels like she would harm herself, not harm other people or other things right. to get attention. Yeah. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartment! Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls, you change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. You don't get it. You just, you don't get it. Don't you remember our weekend? It wasn't that wonderful. <laughs> Why can't we just be like that again? I know you feel it too. I mean, what are you so afraid of? <laughs> just don't flatter yourself, Alex. Go ahead, hit me. If you can't fuck me, why don't you just hit me? You're so sad. You know that, Alex? Lonely and very sad. Don't you ever pity me, I'll pity you. bastard. I'll pity you. I'll pity you because you're sick. Why? Because I won't allow you to treat me like some slut you can just bang a couple of times and throw in the garbage? I'm going to be the mother of your child. I want a little respect. Quick alternate universe cast in this film. 
Barbara Hershey was considered for Alex Forrest when okay. Moses' role. Uh, the 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 really interesting role person that's very against type, Gilda Radner, as Alex, as Alex. I think she would have been good. I think she would have been good too. It's very against type, but she. I think she could have pulled that off. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Demi Moore auditioned for this role. I don't know if that's. If that <laughs> um, I don't know that Demi would have pulled this one off. Sorry. I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um. So the movie is released. On September 18th, 1987, it would spend eight weeks at number one, the U.S. Wow. box office, um, becoming the second highest grossing film in 1987 in the U.S. behind Three Men and a Baby. Uh, classic. But it would be the the year's biggest film worldwide, grossing $320 million. It was also a pretty decent hit with critics, uh, specifically with awards. The film would be nominated for six Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, it'd be Lyons' only Best Director nomination, Glenn Close for Best Actress, Ann Archer for Best Supporting Actress, Best Screenplay, uh, Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. Who And also edited, co-edited by Michael Kahn, who, would layer, who is Spielberg's go-to editor. Also, too, I'll bring this up here, too, is that Paramount Plus is a, is a rebooting Fatal Attraction. It's just announced recently. Are they doing Flashdance as well? They're doing Flashdance as well. Yeah um and flashdance like i said was a massive hit and i think i think lion said like it wasn't a big hit the first week it came out but just somehow just kept playing well as it went by word of mouth uh and this was very similar it kept making money because of word of mouth because it stayed so at number one for so long so line would then use his clout after having two massive box office successes with flashdance and fail attraction specifically fail attraction and he decided to go go off the erotic thriller route, the eroticism route, and make a movie that had been floating around for almost a decade in Hollywood that no studio wanted to make. And that was Jacob's Ladder. So, Thomas, what is Jacob's Ladder about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Without spoiling it for people. Jacob's Ladder is about Jacob Singer, who is a Vietnam vet who now works at the post office, uh, is kind of has is divorced, is dealing with both his PTSD from Vietnam and also the loss of a child and who is starting to have these visions of like demons and, and these monsters haunting him and thinks that he might be like damned to hell. Maybe that these demons are maybe like coming to drag him to hell for, for, yeah. for things that happened in Vietnam. And I think they've been tested on at one point, like by, by the government, by as being Vietnam War vets, they were tested on over uh, overseas. So there's a lot of things like they don't know what happened to them because it, it, the movie kind of starts off with this kind of um, haunting battle in Vietnam where you don't know what's happening, mm-hmm. it, and the kind of we kind of keep coming back to that with new information kind of every time. Um, and it stars Tim Robbins as kind of your lead, Elizabeth Pena, who is a phenomenal actor. Like she was in some great stuff mm-hmm. that uh like sadly uh passed away at 55 and 2014 but was in some really good stuff with like we talked with her lone star um i think she's uh great in uh well she's great in rush hour for the time she's in la bamba another one uh but yeah she's great in this movie um and most of the cast is but this is a very when you look at this film i think you said like you watch this and be like what would have happened to lion's career if this was successful at the box office yeah like it, 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 because it, it didn't do as well he, as Fatal he Attraction. Definitely knows how to direct horror. 
Um, yeah. There are some amazingly haunting sequences in this film, especially the uh, the the party. He goes to this like party, party with all scene. of his coworkers, and he starts having like multiple visions all going on. And there's a strobe light going, and so with every flash, you have this kind of like different gruesome image popping up. And yeah, this whole movie is bizarre in the in the best way yeah. possible. It's it's you know I I don't know that there are ever any like jump scares in this movie, but it's more of just this thing of like everywhere you turn, it's just this haunting image that's gonna stick with you. Yeah, because the way he shoots the demons and like kind of like the weird kind of ghost like figures is really ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Like and how because basically this movie ended up like kind of influencing. The video game Silent Hill is what it was. Well, and I, like, I, I think this this movie, like, and I, and I don't want to say like this is the first movie to tie like horror with like actual, you know, traumatic experiences because li- yeah. a couple of years before it, it's this movie does it a lot better. But the movie House, not not House yeah. but the American movie House, is also oh, yeah. about a, a Vietnam vet who has lost a son who is experiment mm-hmm. who is experiencing like a combination of a haunting and PTSD. So yeah. obviously this isn't the first movie to do it. That one does it in more of like a slapstick way, which sounds weird. But if you watch the movie, that's kind of the way it works. Um, mm-hmm. Also a fun movie. But this, I, I feel like a lot of the modern horror movement right now, like the A24 horror kind of stuff, owes a lot to this movie. And being that's like, you know, when you when you come away from it, you're like, yeah, I saw a lot of scary stuff in that movie. But ultimately, the true horror is like emotional damage, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it is, it is, yeah. Um, so the script was written by Bruce Drill Rubin, and Bruce Drill Rubin uh, had written uh, Brainstorm, which was starred Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood's last film. We also did Deadly Friend by Wes for Wes Craven. Uh, his kind of big breakout was, I believe, a, the same year he had a big year was Ghost mm. with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. He did the same year in 1990. He was very much interested in doing kind of like these looking at like Dante's Inferno and kind of the story of Jacob's ladder, which is, it's just a, the dream of a meeting place between heaven and earth is what it's, what it is, the biblical story. And so he's very much diving in like the biblical imagery. Um, and when Lyon came in again, this, he, he began working on the script in 1980, Ruben did. And so many directors came in to try to make it really Scott expressed interest, saying Lamette, Michael Apted, but everyone kind of said like major studios were like, this is too metaphysical. And we don't make ghost stories is what it was. Um, and so uh, line reads the script and it's like, this is one of the best scripts I've ever read. And he dropped out of making bonfire, the vanities mm-hmm. to make this. So the, the Palma didn't get flash dance. The Palma gets bonfire, the vanities. Um, <laughs> How'd that turn so, out for him? <laughs> I know. And everyone kind of says, uh, was like, you wonder, cause I haven't seen bonfire, the vanities, but it sounds like what it needed was actually kind of lines uh expertise mm-hmm. is probably what it needed in a way um so it gets made a lot of different people kind of are attached to it. i think at one point weirdly they want tom hanks for the role of jacob singer uh, but he goes off and does bonfire mm-hmm. the Vanities instead <laughs> um but yeah what this movie does it's like the way it deals with like dreams too in a way it's gotta go with like eyes wide shut even though that like that this is not as this is this is more blatant than that one is, but like, you don't know like what kind of world you're in a lot of the time. Yeah, it it never gives you the like, you know the the harp and the and the filter to go like, okay, now we're going into a dream. It's just like from shot to shot, you never know 
whether Jacob's yeah. asleep or awake or hallucinating or, or or where you're at with him. And so it does it does he he line puts you like right there with Jacob. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's an, a great uh it's a it's a really good portrayal of kind of mental illness and PTSD and all that kind of stuff because he really does yeah. put you right there with him. You you are seeing the world the way that he sees it. Yeah, and and, and it, the way it uses kind of like I, I love it's a very kind of like short sequence when he kind of meets back up with his war buddies. Mm-hmm. Like that could honestly be a whole separate movie in itself of like them trying to figure out what happened to them. But that's kind of just like they have this mo- these few moments. They're like, oh no, we're not gonna continue on this route. Like, do your own thing, Jacob. We don't we don't want to talk to you anymore. Basically, yeah. And it has this it, like, the, basically like a lot. There's lots of times this movie where like it makes him feel like he's insane. Yeah. It's the, like, he goes to the doctor's office, like, oh, we don't know who you are. Like, there's no record of you. Like that doctor's never worked also, here. Danny but Ella, like, oh, no. Great. Yeah. Great in this. RIP. I, I just wanted this one. Watch like How many movies represent chiropractors? Like this <laughs> very, very like, favorable portrayal of a chiropractor. Yeah. Like, I, I was just like, when do we see in movies like a chiropractor, like a lot. And like, cause there's a moment when he's just like, when he's in like a, a nightmarish kind of hospital, and you're like, and Daniel's just like, I'm taking you out of here. I'm and he takes him and goes, like, gives him You need an adjustment now. But yeah, it's a movie that, like, after watching it last night, like, it's one where, like, I I do feel like I would, you would see a lot more in it that second watch. Mm-hmm. Once you know what happens at the end. Because then, like, certain things that didn't make sense at first start to make a lot more sense. Uh, Probably in a rewatch. Do you have anything else you want you like about this movie? Because this is one that I think is up there as, like, might get forgotten in his catalog because it's not erotic thriller yeah um i mean i just think that whole i already said the party sequence but afterwards you, we've got the sequence of him running a fever and elizabeth pena trying to like get him in a bathtub and cover him in ice and then he and then he wakes up and realizes that was all a dream and he's actually still at home with his wife and it is it, that whole sequence is so well done the, and you're left wondering like what, what the hell yeah, are, what, what, what we have, like, has where the we whole at? like first act of this film been a dream uh, yeah other thing i gotta say uh, another amazing horror sequence is when he's getting wheeled into after he's been like thrown out of a car and he's being wheeled into the emergency room and it just oh yeah keeps descending deeper and deeper into hell basically as they're wheeling him to the emergency room uh other thing i have to say i've i've shouted him out on this podcast before he uh popped up a couple of times in our tony scott month big matt craven fan always happy to see matt craven that man has been working for decades <laughs> always happy to see matt craven pop up in something yeah did you notice lewis black in the movie i did i did As oh, doctor. oh i forgot forgot to shout out um uh oh shoot what's his name um give me one sec there's a lot of weird and all in a lot of his early movies you see a lot of like famous people before they get famous uh, i was gonna say i forgot to shout out robert wool and flash dance for like yeah. two seconds a shot of robert wool he's he's had a, he's had a couple of appearances on our show yeah um boulder and blue chips we didn't do batman yet but he was in batman returns all right we've done batman returns but he didn't he was in batman and yeah and then uh uh macaulay culkin and jacob's ladder yeah (laughs) this the same year as home alone i was like oh man macaulay culkin's this movie and they're like oh he's barely in this movie something's wrong jake i don't know what it is but i can't talk to anybody about it I mean, I figured I could talk to you. You always used to listen, you know? 
I'm going to hell. That's as straight as I can put it. And don't tell me that I'm crazy, because I know I'm not. They're coming after me. Who is? They've been following me. They're coming out of the walls. I can't trust anybody. Adrian Lyne used his influence from Fatal Attraction to make this movie. The budget was $25 million. So was, I think it was his biggest budget film at this moment in time. And it only makes $26 million at the box office. Ah, bummer. So doesn't do well. It's it's well-received with critics. Um, Ebert gives it three and a half stars, saying it left him reeling with turmoil and confusion, with feelings of sadness and despair, and called it a thoroughly painful and depressing experience. Uh, but it must be said, one that has been powerfully written, directed, and acted. Um, and, and some people kind of say, like, it kind of predates the like the darker kind of horror genre films like mm-hmm. seven is when people kind of bring up it's a year before uh silence of the lambs so you're kind of seeing this like move to like prestige horror i guess maybe in a way and so i can see why you say a24 like owes a debt yeah to James Aster. like just just this like the you know all like hereditary and midsummer all this stuff it's like yeah there's scary stuff out there but the really scary stuff is in your head so because it doesn't do well what does adrian lynn or line have to do he has to go back to eroticism or some form of eroticism (laughs) and that leads us to 1993's indecent proposal so thomas what is indecent proposal about uh indecent proposal is about a, a young couple who is apparently very much in love or this is what we are told uh played by woody Har- harrelson and demi moore and but they are broke and they are not going to be able to build their dream home and so they go to vegas to take the last of their savings and risk it all in vegas to get enough money to pay off their mortgage and while there, they Demi meets a billionaire played by the charismatic as always Robert Redford, who offers them a million dollars to sleep with Demi for one night. And they talk it over and they decide to go with it. But then the movie is kind of about the implications of how, how do you move forward as a couple kind of after yeah. that has happened after you've pimped your wife out for a million dollars. You mentioned it in your box review and I felt the same way. It's like, it feels like we have several different movies happening in this film. Yes. Like, I feel like you're, like you said, you were in a rom-com for a little bit. It feels like you're in like a drama. Maybe you could be in an erotic thriller if you wanted to be like, it's just, it's all over the place. If you, if you remove Woody from the equation, this is like pretty woman. Basically Robert Redford is extremely charming he and Demi have yeah. fantastic chemistry together. Sorry, yeah. spoiler alert. Kind of the twist of the movie in the end is like he starts ass- acting like an asshole to get Demi to go back with Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. And then the yeah. like twist is that he he was just acting like that because he knew that like she belonged with Woody. And so it's like, oh, it's kind of heartbreaking. Like they were better together. And to know that he was actually like a good guy billionaire the whole a time. A good guy. <laughs> And Woody's just an asshole. We need to her, those. Like, the we the need. Movie. We need those in the world right now. Yeah. We need those good, good-hearted billionaires in the world right now. Woody's a jerk. Like he's never. The, <laughs> other, other than the, the, I said, this is kind of the the Adrian line of it all. Like other, they 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 have a great sex life. 
um you know they're the kind of couple that like starts fighting and it turns into having sex on the kitchen counter like that that's the only reason the movie gives us to think that like they belong together like they they don't yeah woody's an asshole through the whole movie they don't <laughs> really seem to understand each other in any sense and uh oliver platt plays his best friend who's his lawyer he's hilarious that that scene when yeah. he gets the call about whether or not to drop the contract and he's in the like meeting with these writers to see if he should be their lawyer is the one joke you like when he goes we have to talk about the moral the the, the morale of the story or whatever yeah. and he's like oh no i've already discussed it no no, no i mean my fee <laughs> they're like oh we already know you're our lawyer um, you're a lawyer you're you're our guy we need someone like you yeah so there's these funny moments but then like anything with woody is just him like brooding and so yeah like ultimately there's app they have they really i don't think they have any chemistry in this movie and so i don't know what ultimately it's just like do they belong together because the movie tells us they belong together do they belong together because they were high school sweethearts because that seems like really naive for a movie about paying a million dollars to have sex with like contracting your wife out to another man it's it is just like a mess yeah i I think the premise of you could do an interesting movie with that premise but it just it can't commit to what it wants to do yeah like it could be dark it doesn't want to be dark yeah it's it's like well like woody woody harrelson's character and this is something kind of with i think with a lot of i i, I was reminded a little bit of mickey rourke's character briefly with this because i feel like both those characters act like children like mm-hmm. i think rourke's character is like the, the he can act like a child in that movie no matter how rich and successful and powerful he is and woody harrelson's like his shoes are on, his shoes are on the, the the kitchen table like he throws his clothes everywhere like he's very much like a teenager and like she's the more mature person in the or she's the more mature, mature of the couple basically yeah, absolutely like she's the one who's like a real estate person like she she's very she could be successful but she's stuck and you have this interesting class dynamic and she could be big but it's almost like he's kind of holding her back in a way because of because of his dreams essentially I think the best sequence, the the stuff in there is when they're in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Like I think the way he shoot, the way line shoots Vegas, like the, like the like the craps table, I think is amazing. Yeah, there's a great scene like at, when he decides he's gonna go back and like get her, where he's it's kind of like slow mo and he's walking through like the yeah. the horse betting station and it's like yeah. real dark yeah. and he's kind of lit by the TV screens. It's, yeah, yeah, it's the, really uh, yeah yeah super well shot again. I feel sorry for Demi Moore that after all those times of trying to be in an uh, Adrian Lyne film, this is the one she ended up being in. <laughs> uh, but to say all that, it did make $266 million on a $38 million budget. So it was a massive success. It's got big stars. I think at this point, you've got kind of Lyne's reputation. You're like, oh, okay, this is going to be it's gonna be hot. Yeah. You know? It's going to be hot. Yeah, because I mean, at this point too, like, uh, more is at like her kind of peak. Like, it's it's a year after a few good men, it's three years after Ghost. Um, but yeah, uh, I but but Ebert it actually it got okay reviews. I think it was mostly mixed. No, it was it was bad reviews, but somehow Ebert <laughs> gave it a thumbs up. Thumbs up. Uh, when G- Gene Siskel got two thumbs down. Yeah. Uh, it was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Golden Raspberry Awards. It won for three. It won for worst screenplay. <laughs> it won. It won for worst supporting actor for Woody Harrelson, and it won for worst picture for that year. So with that success, I guess he he 
he uses that success again to make another controversial movie. <laughs> and that is an adaptation of the Vladimir Novikov uh, novel Lolita. So Thomas, what is Lolita about? Wow. Uh, it's about professor Humbert Humbert. What a name. <laughs> who is a college professor who is kind of taking the summer, taking a sabbatical to go do some writing. And he ends up renting a room in this house with a woman played by Melanie Griffith, who's had is a single mom to a 12 year old girl. Uh, and while staying there, he falls in love with the 12 year old girl hear me out if you guys aren't familiar with the with the with the novel Good story yeah. uh very very controversial novel very controversial yes. previously adapted into a film by stanley kubrick it's like i feel like the reason part of the reason the novel is is very famous is because it's like an early example of a unreliable narrator it's yeah. it's written from a first por- person point of view so it's presented to us like this is all okay it's yeah. not okay yeah. obviously um, essentially it's it's the perspective of a pedophile is what it yes, is like, yes, that's what we're it is. seeing the film it is it is presented to us like a love story because yeah. we are being given the point of view of, of a pedophile anyway he ends up uh marrying marrying her mom spoiler this is the first act of the film she dies uh and so he becomes her guardian while he is also striking up a sexual relationship with a 12 year old girl uh, and and so then it kind of follows them a couple years in their life of being like her guardian and also in love with her and also trying yeah. to hide that relationship and it gets very out of hand and and does ultimately become kind of a thriller yeah i mean because the subject matter this is a very uncomfortable film to watch yes extremely like, uncomfortable it, film to watch and, and what's so because like a lot of letterbox reviews are just like how can something be so disturbing yet beautiful at the same exact time yeah because the way the way he shoots it is i mean like it, i mean he shoots it like a romance and that's yep. what's like what's what's incredibly disturbing yeah he he i mean line knows exactly what he's doing with this movie and i think it's kind of incredible i think this is one of the most interesting ones to watch when, when you've watched kind of his whole career because he's doing a little bit of all of his styles here, but in the beginning, before it, you know, when we're when we still trust, when we're still conditioned to trust Humbert Humbert, you know, he's the narrator mm-hmm. of the film, he's Jeremy Irons, he's got gravitas. Lyons shoots the film from his point of view, and he shoots it like he would shoot nine and a half weeks, where these yeah. these things that that Lolita does are pre- presented to us as sensual, but they're also if you can you're watching it objectively and you can break yourself out of this camera which is humbert's eyes and go she's just being a 12 year old girl stop looking at her like this is sensual you know it's like it'll like look at her look at her like bare feet in the grass and i'm like she's 12 she's being 12 yeah um and, yeah, and she's like reading a mag- magazine in the yard is what it yeah, is and that's like sticking like, her gum under the table and humbert's like oh my god that's so hot and it's like no it's not she's a child but but line shoots it like perfectly to sh- to show you kind of both sides of that and yeah i i it is yeah it's a tough watch but yeah. but he does it so well 
Yeah, I mean, another scene I like in terms of just how he shoots, it's the Frank Langella's intro. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Like, where it's like, well, no, well, both intros, actually. So the first time when, when Lolita meets him, and then when Humbert Humbert meets the, him. The inserts of have, the, the flies buzzing into the fly trap, like, yeah, just cutting to amazing. it over and over again. Yeah, but then you also have, like, the way he introduces her to Lolita, where it's just, like, his finger mm-hmm. is what it is, one of the dog. On the dog leash, yeah. Like, because I have someone who's like, oh, like, I don't know if I could deal with, like, Frank Langella playing Peter Sellers from the, the Kubrick version. It's like, Langella's very, barely in this movie. Like, and when he's there, he's always obscured for the most part. Like, he's built up as this kind of monster as well. That being said, mm-hmm. I think the last 10 minutes of this movie are my favorite 10 minutes of Adrian Lyne's career. Wow. It is insane. It is unhinged. Yeah him confronting langella langella is unhinged in in his performance <laughs> yeah then, i like, agree running down the hall naked with his robe like like flying out behind him when he goes to the piano and he's just like hammering on the piano it is insane yeah. it's like I, honestly it's, it's it's the closest he's gotten to jacob's ladder energy outside of jacob's ladder it is it is kind of terrifying like it's visceral that's fair and especially because, again, you built up, and now looking at it's his perspective, is that, of course, Humbert Humbert views him as this, like, monster mm-hmm. throughout the movie. And then all of a sudden it's revealed to him, like, he's just a regular dude yeah. who's, like, a band. Kind of pathetic. Who's yeah. Up in, who, yeah, he's pathetic in a mansion who, like, can't even remember who the girl was or who he was. That he, cause, and he's seen, he's, he's basically stalked them, like, for, for a while, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even remember who they are. So, as you can tell... This movie was was it was difficult to find a distributor for this film. Yeah, <laughs> because of, because the the content of the film, it had to premiere on Showtime on August second, nineteen ninety eight, after its initial premiere in uh, Rome in ninety seven. Uh, it would not gain a distributor until September, and it opened September twenty fifth, nineteen ninety eight. Uh, it made a total of $1.1 million against a $62 million budget. Oh my God. So a massive yeah. period piece, massive man. box office fa- failure, massive reviews were fairly good. It got 68% on Rotten Tomatoes uh, currently. Um, some people say praising irons and Swain who plays Lolita. Yes, Dominic Swain is amazing. as Lolita is, a, is amazing. And you got a uh, Morcone score mm-hmm. as well in this film. So a lot of a lot of great things. It's just a difficult, a difficult watch. Can I, um, can I say say one of my big problems with the movie? Melanie Griffith death scene makes no sense to me. I had to rewind it and watch it like four times. And the timeline yeah. is so bizarre. Okay. She finds his letters. He yeah. says, I'm gonna go make us a drink. He goes to the kitchen. He makes two drinks, literally just like whiskey on the rocks. Phone starts ringing. He picks up the phone. It's someone calling to tell him that Melanie Griffith has been hit by a car. So in the amount of time it took him to pour the whiskey, she got hit by a car. Someone identified her. It's literally right down the street. They chose to, instead of walking up and knocking on his door, go into their house, call the operator Uh, at this time period, right? Call the operator. Operator has to call him. Yeah. By the time he gets down there, like the cops are already there. What? Makes no I sense. think she also she she also wrote letters to 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 Lolita in that amount of time, yeah. or like she she had letters to go give her. Is what yeah. it was she's walking to the mailbox, 
Like, I wonder if it was that old woman that called him because he cuts the old woman being like, oh my God, like pointing to her and then she faints at one point at the end. Yeah. So, but like, because like, maybe like, because she's out on her porch all the time, she has like a phone mm-hmm. by there. Like, yeah, it's, I, I, it's a, it's, it's, you it's can tell that they line. had that idea like, oh, it'd be cool because he's like, there's someone on the phone telling me that you're dead. And he like walks over and then she's, and he's like, how silly. And then he walks over and she's gone. And, but it's yeah. Like, it, it's not like they had cell phones. Yeah. And a concept, it's a good idea of like, oh, but you're right here. And that's like, oh no, you. You walked out. You walked pretty far across the yeah. street. <laughs> like the first time I was watching that, I was like, "Wait, did I? Miss, did he take a nap in between or something? What did I miss?" And like a pretty, pretty residential road, kind of hard to miss you walking across the street. Yeah, uh, to the mailbox. So I, I have questions about that driver. Um, but yeah, so it didn't do well, box office wise. And then he follows it up four years later. He goes back to the erotic thriller genre with as of right now his last release film and that is the 2002 film unfaithful so thomas what is unfaithful about unfaithful is about a and yet another you know blissfully wed couple with a with a cute kid uh this time living in the suburbs which the the couple in fatal attraction was getting ready to move to the suburbs richard Gere, diane lane been married about 10 years very happy marriage as far as they they know but one day while going into New York City for business, Diane Lane meets this uh, mysterious French uh, book collector who yeah. uh, she just can't like she almost goes up to his apartment, but she decides not to. But then she like can't get him out of her mind. And so then she goes back into the city and she strikes up this very long affair with him, mm-hmm. which eventually Richard Gere will find out about. And then will maybe go confront the man who has been sleeping <laughs> with his wife and that's where and that's where we'll end off or, or i mean do i don't know if we need to for the purpose of this discussion we might need to go further but who knows we will he confronts him well she does actually go up to the apartment the first time she has she she goes up there but leaves because 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 he mm. gives her a book is what it is yeah, yeah, yeah that's true but she still can't stop thinking about him, so she goes back to see him and then the later, first time, nothing later happens. she thinks about what would have happened if she'd just gotten in yeah. Should have gone she, home. Yeah, that's should have said that's no. kind of the end. Was, she says no. She's like, I just got in. And, and he and he would have been fine. Like, oh, whatever. But yeah, so unfaithful. For first off, Diane Lane's amazing in this movie. Yes, absolutely. Like, is is I think one of the most underrated performances of the 2000s, in my opinion, that like no one talks about. Because she gets nominated for an Oscar, for, I think the only Oscar nomination for this film is this is her performance, and I think she is fantastic. Um, and Gear's good too. I think I think the cast is all good. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she's the like you said earlier. In most cases, like that would be the male role. It's it's the switch. That, oh, it's, like, he's he. There's no femme fatale in this movie. It's the it's a male version of it mm-hmm. essentially. So what? what's kind of a favorite moment or favorite thing you like about this movie? So, you know, I, I, I talked earlier during footloose about what a kind of master flash dance, you mean or flash, dance, flash sorry. dance. I talked earlier, <laughs> talked earlier during flash dance about lines, attention to like body language and movement. And there's this sequence where she's riding home on the train after oh, I believe man. it's the first time they've slept together. Right. Cause it's kind of like, I, I think so. We we don't really see like we we we're like oh we're kind of led up to the point where they're going to sleep together and then we cut back to her on the train and we're kind of like oh okay well maybe they're not going to show us what happened but then she starts to like 
you can start to tell through her body language that she's kind of thinking back on it. And then we start to get these like flashes and he actually kind of recreates that same sequence later on with Richard Gere after he's reliving the things that he has also done in that apartment and his body language and the memories that are coming back to him and, and the way he kind of has these people react and the way he's directing the actors and the way the performances that they're given are are so well done. And um, yeah, I, I really think there's a level of kind of movement and attention to the human body in this movie that, despite kind of the eroticism he's done in the past he's never this this is kind of the peak of his, as far as like mm-hmm. just kind of paying attention to the way the human body moves and and it's it's really interesting i mean even in a different i mean and this is more primary just performance than than that but like i think of like when the because let's we'll say this uh uh paul who's the book dealer that she has an affair with he goes missing at some point mm-hmm. um and when the police come to see them it's a it's a dramatic scene from both of them because we know gear's done something diane lane however is not aware of that mm-hmm. and so their body language is so she is trying to make sure her husband doesn't find out she's having an affair with this guy yep and gear's trying to make sure no one finds out what he did to paul yeah and they're almost like trying to cover for one like he's trying to cover for connie's care or for diane lane's character but also because if he doesn't cover for her, he's gonna get asked that he, he, I'll say it, he killed Paul. Yeah. It's just the way it's playing it is so great. Yeah. So th- there's so much tension and drama. Yeah, and in that's it. that's I think that's the the genius of this film is like the the attention to and I keep saying this like the attention to like body language and movement. Yeah. It is as much there once you have that turn, and it goes from you know an erotic film to a thriller film. Th- there's an equal amount of attention paid there's there's you know all this attention paid to like what is your what is your body like what are two bodies like when you're attracted to each other you know the Mm -hmm. the 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 sex and the the, her thinking about it when she's back at home and 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 the sensuality of it but there's just as much attention paid to the body language of guilt in the second half of this movie and both gear and lane both of their performances of just like being completely weighed down by guilt and and it just completely enraptures this whole like the, the the second half of this movie is just all about the the physical and emotional toll of guilt and and he treats it almost exactly the same as he treats that like desire and eroticism in the first half tell me what you did you tell me what you did you fucked him over and over and over you lied to me over and over and over Edward, please. No, you don't talk to me now. I gave everything for this family. Everything. And what did you do? You threw it all away. Like it was nothing. What? To the fucking kid! You didn't think I'd know? I couldn't feel it. I knew it from the very first day. Because I know you, Connie. I know you and I fucking hate you. I didn't want to kill him. I wanted to kill you. So apparently, uh, when it, the way the way he shot it took a toll on some of the actors because he adds so much haze and smoke to the scenes mm-hmm. is what it was. 
The smoke was piped in for 8 to 20 hours a day, and gear members, our throats were being blown out. We had a special doctor who was there almost all the time who was shooting people up with antibiotics from bronchial infections. Oh, my God. Um, Lane acquired an oxygen bottle in order to survive the rigorous schedule. Lin, or Lane shot five different endings to the film because of his experience with Fatal Attraction. Because <laughs> he didn't want to go back and reshoot anything. He said, according to Lane, he had some debate with 20th Century Fox officials who wanted to make the marriage gray, the sex bad. I fought that. I tried to explore the guilt, the jealousy, and that's what I'm interested in. The studio didn't like the ending because they felt it failed to punish the characters for their crimes, basically. Following negative re- reactions from the test audiences from, the, from the, uh, the studio ending, they brought in the original ending beforehand. And I think they even reshot some of it, too. So apparently it had the same thing like Fail Attraction. They had to redo the ending, and they had to create a more ambiguous ending that lets the audience kind of choose what kind of happens in it. So it comes out May of 2002... And it makes $14 million on its opening weekend. It goes for $119 million worldwide against its $15 million budget. But our critics are very mixed. It currently holds a 50% on the dot on Rotten Tomatoes from 166 reviews. My, I got to say, my um, my first memory of this movie, I don't remember if my parents went to see it in theater. I feel like they did go see it in theaters. They're very big Richard Gere fans, very big Diane, Diane Lane fans, both of my parents. And I remember them hating it. I don't know what they thought. It was kind of know what they thought they were going into like a. It's called unfaithful. I don't know. If they thought they were going into a rom com or what. But I, 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 yeah, I can't recall if they. I would have been young enough. They would have had to get like a babysitter to go see it in theaters, or they might have just rented it from mm-hmm. Blockbuster and like made us go in the other room while they watched it. But I remember being like, "How's the movie?" And they were all like, "Ugh." Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like I want. I feel like this movie is like better over time. I don't know because I like. I'm even like on Letterboxd, it has a fairly low rating than what I was expecting. Why do you think it didn't do well? Like, I mean, it was fairly far removed from the genre, so I, I, I'm not even sure if people going into it like knew that it was going. And it's not shot like I think because it's so far removed. Like you don't have the neon lights, you don't have kind of the high contrast of those 80s those late 80s early 90s erotic thrillers so it it doesn't signal that it is an erotic thriller. it's not going like hey you guys remember basic instinct we're we're like keeping in line with that and and you know it it it's it's quite a while into the movie before it kind of becomes a thriller um so it, it does it plays pretty much the midpoint pretty much the midpoint yeah yeah it plays with the genre but I'm not sure that people, I think it might be a little bit too far removed from the genre for people to appreciate playing with it. That's fair. And I, and I, and I wonder too, because we talked about how it has this ambiguous ending with that type of movie, they want like a pretty much like what's the, like a finality to it. Like, yeah. well, and also with the, with the direction that, the, you know, it's as far downhill as that genre went to then have like two very prestige actors at that time in it probably gave people different expectations than for it to be like sex and murder, you know? And, and yes, it definitely elevates sex and murder, but it's still, yeah. You know, people are, I think it, it by 2002, people are forgetting that Glenn Close was nominated for an Oscar for a movie in this genre. Yeah. You know, they're, they're yeah. thinking more about the mid nineties and, and HBO late night original yeah. movies and that sort of thing yeah so so yeah but but still people would, would liked her performance and 
they usually single out the train ride sequence is what it is when she's going back home so yeah that would be his kind of final film for a while until until this march when after 20 years he's making deep water with uh ben affleck and ade armos um weirdly you know who who's a co-writer on this movie there thomas Mm-mm. sam levinson from you uh, uh director of euphoria oh man interesting i didn't know that until a few days ago i was looking at this so it's how do you think this is gonna go i i, I do think in in especially as a streaming film I, yeah. I think it's got a shot. It'll play well. Yeah. Yeah, I you think know, so too. We, we talked at the beginning of the month about that one, The Voyeurs, that just came out recently on Amazon. Netflix had that Italian film. So I, I do think there's kind of this return because I think the genre kind of went to TV for a little while, went to that premium premium cable, yeah. went to streaming. Yeah. And so now people are kind of open to it. People are, are used to seeing that sexual content back and, and kind of mix people are used to the idea of like sexual content being mixed in with premium entertainment, you know, game of Thrones, once again, HBO, but this idea that like, I think we, I think the genre, when it went downhill, it cheapened movie sex so much that, that people are like, Oh yeah, great. Another sex scene. And kind of lost appreciation for the, I sent you an article in the New Yorker this week about yeah, yeah. like the death of the sex scene. And all these film critics were like, Hey guys, you know, like we're, we weren't fans of like over sexualization of like women in movies and that sort of thing. So that doesn't mean we got to get rid of the sex scene. Like we can bring the sex scene back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's done well. Um, and so, yeah, I do think we're kind of op- the TV and cable and streaming have opened people back up to the idea of a, you know, prestige sex scene. And, and so, yeah, yeah I think, I think he's got a shot. I think it could, I think people will tune in, especially, you know, kind of like Eyes Wide Shut, especially because of the real world relationship between yeah. Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas uh, that is now dead, but would have been alive at the point that the movie was originally supposed to come out. But yeah, too, and so I'm interested to see too how it does, because what I think Lion's done so well, we talked about his sex scenes, but he does like, I think he does a good job at catch, capturing intimacy in some of his films. Mm-hmm. In a sex scene and out of the sex scene, I'm, I'm reminded of the, it's the kind of the ending scene Unfaithful where they're in the car at the end and deciding kind of like what, what to do. Mm-hmm. And Lane and gear had this very intimate conversation about like, should we just go away? Should we like leave the country or go here? But he has these very quiet moments in the midst of all the kind of sexual nature. I mean, even nine and a half weeks kind of has these weird still dominating and pow- like power dynamic, like moments, mm-hmm. but still kind of like quiet moments between the two people. Yeah. Um, so I'm intrigued to see if deep water, also has some of those moments um speaking of ben affleck uh with this so one of the the one of the unrealized projects from adrian line's career was an adaptation of prince of thieves which would be later be ben affleck's the town apparently uh line was going to direct it after unfaithful but it all fell through and he didn't make anything he says he's been living in france for the time and wishing he was French instead of uh, instead of British. So yeah, so let's go on to stats. I don't think he's had a repeating ca- actor, by the way. I didn't catch anyone that repeated. Did you? No one big, I know. Yeah, I don't think so. Um. All right. So what do you think are his top three rated films? Uh, Fatal Attraction. That's number two. Ooh, uh, Jacob's Ladder. Number one. And Lolita? 
Number three. That is that is correct. Hey. That's correct. Where are his three lowest? Indecent proposal. That's bottom. Foxes. Nope, that's not in the bottom three. Hmm. Uh, nine and a half weeks. Nine and a half weeks. Next, next to the bottom. And Flashdance. Then Flashdance. Oh, oh, Flashdance. Uh, now film popularity. Where are his top three popular films? Most popular. Uh, Fatal Attraction. Number two. Ooh, number two. Jacob's Ladder. Number one. Number one. Oh, I gotta remember. It's it's the Letterbox crowd. Um. Yeah. And Flashdance. Number three. No, that's number four. Uh, Lolita. Lolita number three. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. What What are the bottom three? <laughs> Fox's bottom. Indecent proposal. Yep. Nine and no. a half weeks. Nine and a half weeks is next to the bottom. Indecent proposal is not in the bottom. Unfaithful. Unfaithful. Wow. More people have seen indecent proposal and unfaithful. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's get to our rankings here. We mm-hmm. haven't done this in a while because actually have watched all these films. How do you, you want to do from top to bottom or bottom to top? Uh, sure. Yeah. All right. At the bottom, my bottom is indecent proposal. My bottom is also indecent proposal. Okay. What's your seven? Uh, nine and a half weeks. That's also my seven. Number six, I have foxes. Okay. I have flash dance. Okay. All right. Well, this would be interesting. I have Lolita five. That's my five as well. And then I have flash dance four. And then I have foxes at four. Wow. Okay. All but right. Let's I, see. But 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 by, as we talked about beforehand. Four to six were tough. Four, five, six I'm, could go. Yeah. I, I, I've switched flash dance. I switched all those four several times. So on yeah. this day, because I just watched Foxes today, Foxes is, is at four, but it's a, it's a, it's a very small margin. Yeah, especially Flash Dance and Lolita. I went back and forth on those for a while. Um, all right, then I have Unfaithful at three. I have Fatal Attraction at three. I've got Fatal Attraction at two. Okay, I have. I also flip flop these. I have Unfaithful at two. And then Jacob Ladder, number one. Jacob Ladder is my number one as well. Okay. Not too far off. Not too far off. I mean, he's only had eight films. Like, I think we flip we flip flop Foxes and Flashdance and flip flop Unfaithful and Fatal Attraction is what it is. Yep. Um, but I think again, I think one through six and and nine and a half weeks, depending if you're in the mood, uh, are, <laughs> are ones to definitely check out. And these proposal I think you can kind of skip. Um, unless unless you're Robert Redford, Dean Moore, Woody Harrelson completist, or Adrian Lyon completist. All right, final director questions. Uh, is Adrian Lyon an auteur? I I don't think so. I don't think so either. I it's and it's weird because there are a lot of similarities in his films, but they're also because, like I said at the top of the show, he's he's a oh strange director for our show because he has worked within one genre like when we pick these directors for these genre episodes a lot of times what we end up doing is like oh they made like these two or three and here's how you can see genre influences in their other ones but he's primarily like an erotic thriller director for the most Mm -hmm. part erotic or thriller yeah it's one of the two yeah and and I'd be interested to see and and so like even though a lot of the lines you could draw there are lines you can draw between the films, a lot of those are defined I think by the genre, and not necessarily by his own personal voice. And yeah. I would actually be more curious to see his voice if he had branched out into other genres, because yeah. like like with Jacob's Ladder, I think you you start to hear his voice come through, and that's when you can start to say like oh. I can connect this to this. Yeah. But the connections you can make between Jacob's ladder and fatal attraction are, 
I think a lot more meaningful than making connections between nine and a half weeks and, and unfaithful, you know, um, the connections are there, obviously. So, so yeah, I wouldn't call him an auteur that, uh, like we've said many times, that is not in any way a negative thing. <laughs> I think he's got an incredible eye. I think he's made some really, really good films better than ultimately I came away this month like more impressed than I thought I was going to going into it for sure. Uh, of, his, of his filmography? Of his, of his films. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Some really, really gorgeous films. And like I said, I, I, I think the thing that really stands out for him is this eye for, for movement and body language that I've, I've rarely seen from another director. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't think that's enough to, to label someone an auteur, but it is enough to draw attention to someone's talent. And, and I think yeah. that's a great talent of his. Yeah, I agree. I, I think his he has a fantastic eye, and that all kind of come again. You see it in that commercials all the way to to his all of his films. Like he knows how to like shoot a movie. He knows how to kind of have a voice, and uh, he knows how to have a perspective. I guess is the better way of saying it. he has a perspective in all of his films. And Lolita being like this prime example of like to showcase how great he can pick a perspective because it's so disturbing because of its front. It's from um, Jeremy Irons' character. Um, but yeah, it's, it's auteur. It's hard to pick what his, like, what's the, the overarching theme throughout. And that kind of leads to our next questions. What, what is his running themes or does he have any? So desire, you know, desire, yeah. <laughs> uh, that out, outside of, you know, flash dances about desire. It, it's mm -hmm. not necessarily about sexual yeah. desire. Uh, foxes and I, I guess you know i guess all, all movies are about wants and needs but uh have some sort of desire uh it, it, it he, he is kind of about people being like completely consumed by something there that's that's even more than desire you know so much of fatal attraction is about this spending this weekend consumed by lust but then like the the fallout of that lust then consuming your entire life basically uh unfaithful is the the, the same way lolita is about you know this sickness this this attraction consuming his entire life as to someone who by all means we have any reason to believe would be like a very reasonable man if he was not a pedophile um and you know and then with flash dance she's consumed by this dream and jacob's ladder he's consumed by his ptsd but uh yeah he's he's, he's definitely good at showing not just through the body language, like we were saying, but through his lens, through his through his framing, through his production design, he he's great at showing like something just completely taking over someone's being. Yeah, yeah, and and, and yeah, you see the scenes like we've talked about. It's the train sequence and and unfaithful, or it's and sequences in Lolita and like something being consumed by or or flash dance. Um, even even to an extent, um. Uh, indecent proposal the casino stuff they're consumed with getting like of mm. getting money to, to pay for their house and like the way he shoots it is almost different than the rest of the movie but that's like this kind of peak like obsession of both of them of like we have to make this money to survive yeah and uh yeah and well and then he's consumed by jealousy you know yeah. he, he, he knows he knows he's ruining his relationship but he can't help it he, he has to know what happened between them it's that scene when he's trying he's trying to go up the elevator and go up to like the helicopter pa uh, pad to go find her and it's just very i mean it's a very chaotic moment that like all of a sudden now his emotions are taking over of like what have i done 
I have to stop this and it's too late. Um, so yeah. Uh, so what genres, uh, does, does line work within Thomas? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean the, the, those first two, I, I don't really even know what to call foxes and flash dance. It, they, they, they're both kind of like character studies. Yeah. Kind of. They, they're kind of genre list. Yeah. You know, flash dance is a dance movie, but it's not really, I mean, it's, um, it's weird because some people call it a musical, like weirdly enough, they call it a musical because there's so many music, musical cues and kind of music video-esque sequences in it. But yeah, uh, I would say, obviously, the the thriller, the erotic thriller and the, the erotic drama. Those those yeah. are your those are your three genres. <laughs> they obviously are all kind of intermingled. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. So on to our final question, genre questions. What are some other films that we didn't talk about this month and like that you that you want to mention here um so we talked about ben affleck earlier i think gone girl is kind of the best erotic thriller that we've had in the modern era uh i i i do i was mentioning kind of tv and how it's moved into tv i think a, a show that is obviously like a post it's it's like a postmodern erotic thriller in the way that like the pilot is an erotic thriller and then the mm-hmm. rest of the show is about kind of how mundane everything is afterwards and that's the show the night of you know that that pilot has this feel of of a classic erotic, erotic thriller it's this innocent guy yeah. there's this mysterious girl she like lures him in with sex there's sensual scenes there's violence then there's like trying to cover up a crime and that pilot is insane. And then the rest of the show is yeah. amazing. I love the rest of the show, but kind of the yeah, point yeah. of the rest of the show is like how just kind of dull and repetitive the justice system is after yeah. after all that goes down. But yeah, absolutely cannot stop recommending that show. It's been years now, but <laughs> no season two. We never, we never got a season two of a, like just following John Turturro's character as a lawyer in New York, like. Mm-hmm. Then are they, they announced that at one point? I, they were talking just, about it, but yeah, yeah I never thought saw so. anything of it. Um, all right, for me, I'm looking at our list. Um, we've talked about it before, but Last Seduction is a movie I, I really do love. It's an erotic thriller. Um, one that's an interesting movie, and I'm not sure. I would call it an erotic thriller. It's very different, but it's cruising with Al Pacino. Mm, Pacino, um, yeah by William Friedkin it's it's he's an undercover cop who kind of there's been a serial killer who's like killing gay men in New York and like in in, like in this S&M like kind of underworld uh uh type scene and Pacino goes undercover to try to find out who is who is killing these men in New York City really good it's it's a, a very like it promotes conversations because mm-hmm. some people feel it's very cold and because of it's kind of this like a little bit of a mystery too. Um, it prompts a lot of questions. It's very, you can either love it or hate it. I really like it. A move. I also like angel heart too. I don't know if that's here mm-hmm. rock thriller, but or angel heart, which is done by Alan Parker, who we've talked about previously today. Um, but Mickey Rourke, I think is great in it. Another good Mickey Rourke performance, of the eighties. Um, so yeah. Um, and then finally, what'd you learn over all this month, Thomas? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I think I learned that this is a genre that has some that is defined by a handful of greats yeah. and then has a whole lot of bad movies. Yeah. Um, but I but I also think it's just like we were saying, it's like this weird little Petri dish like that happens to every genre. You know, how many bad Westerns are there out there? 
Yeah. Uh, but it, that, you know, the Western happened as a genre over 50 years and this happened over like 10. Yeah. And so I think it's a lot easier to pick out the good ones and, and to look at all these bad ones than it is when you have like years and years of a genre going on. So it's been it's been very interesting. It's a tiny little case study. But um, yeah, it's, I, I think I think some of my favorites are at the earlier end. You know, you got yeah. Body Heat up there. You've got obviously Fatal Attraction, like we were saying. You've got mm-hmm. one we didn't really talk about, but it's I think of like the the top two or or Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, which Basic yeah. Instinct's a little bit more towards the the end of the line for the genre. It's I think it's ninety two is what it is. Yeah. yeah, but um, but yeah, so I think it's I think like everything we were saying, it was it was this. I don't know that I would call it a pure genre at all in the first place, but it was very quickly corrupted by yeah. specifically the VHS boom, I think, and the home video boom. So, yeah, it's very, very unique little genre. And, and that's why I was excited to kind of get into it. But yeah. And I think, too, what I learned is kind of the ties to like how it's, again, the VHS market for sure, but also the ties of other things of like the rock where it goes down because of the rise of the internet and how. Mm-hmm essentially porn is accessible on a massive scale you don't have to go like pretend to go see sex in a in a in a hollywood movie um and then also kind of the the uh, correlation between iraq first and the rise of aids in america mm-hmm. was an interesting kind of like um relationship of we're seeing this going up when and and sex is becoming this danger in some way to people and we're using a genre as a way to kind of show that like as danger as physical danger out there so I, I that was interesting to kind of see how similar ways of how horror films how like real life can affect what's the horror of the movies this was kind of that next um step for that is that sex is the horror of these films in some way yeah i agree i think it's very much uh i didn't realize how how quick of a genre it was in terms of years uh, is what i kind of learned over overall but like thrillers and stuff you can still have good examples of it if you don't try just cash in uh, so that's it also you said before but where do you think it is now you think it's mostly on tv now this genre yeah the, a, and streaming right, for right, sure I, streaming. I don't know that you're gonna get people i mean you know we're we're in the the for better or for worse we're in the pg-13 family film era you know uh you've got a hard time dropping anything r in the theaters so yeah i really don't think you're going to get people out to the theaters to see this kind of movie anymore but i I do think especially with streaming having a little bit more clout as far as like being able to put together a good cast uh, yeah i think i think if especially if deepwater performs well on hulu i think we'll see more kind of prestige movies maybe like unfaithful coming yeah. to us from from streamers and i think too it's it's the idea of like privacy in a way of yeah. like you you don't want to go out and watch like a, a just a, a rock thriller in a crowded theater you'd prefer to watch that in the comfort of your own home in a way because you just feel it could make you feel uncomfortable i don't know so yeah i, I think that again that's the rise of the video market of taking the video home so you, so you can't be seen watching it uh in a crowded theater um so yeah it'll be interesting to see what these next few years i think with in our post-COVID world, or if, what is it a post-COVID world? I don't know. Um, but in this COVID world, like, I think you could see a lot of genres see an uptick on streaming than what mm. they were before. Yeah. Because now it's like they won't be as expensive as expensive as they once were. Like I was listening to 
on an older podcast from this year of like them asking Tarantino, can you make Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, in, in this current world? He's like, no. Like, you just can't make it. Um, but you can make other things on top of it. So I wonder if we'll see an uptick of erotic thrillers or thrillers or or, or things of that nature in general on the streaming services. So we'll find out. Uh, but that's it on the erotic thriller genre next month. Thomas, who are, we, who are we covering next month? Next month, we're doing one of our patented director deep dive months. And we are uh, going to be diving into the land of monsters with uh, the, the master of modern monsters, Guillermo del Toro. So get ready. We'll be talking about movies like The Devil's Backbone, his earlier stuff, but also some of his, his superhero stuff like Hellboy and Blade 2. And we'll be talking about Pan's Labyrinth, Crimson Peak, Shape of Water, everything. The recent Nightmare Alley. There's so much to talk about. Um, I'm intrigued because I haven't watched as much of his earlier stuff. So I think it's going to be a fun month uh, to talk about Del Toro. I'm excited. But that's all we have for you in this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so that you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love for you to, you know, leave a comment so other people can hear your thoughts. Maybe somebody's scrolling through. They're like, oh, should I listen to this podcast? Let me see what other people had to say. That's what it's all about. <laughs> spread the word. Spread the love. Um, I think also now, if you're listening to us on Spotify, you can give us a rating. They just add that um, little feature. So five stars would be great on any platform you listen to. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.